Good morning, New Hope. It's great to see you. Happy Easter. It is good to see you. If you'd like to take out your outlines, I love Easter. And the reason why I love Easter is because the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they give us a very chaotic version of the events. All slightly different, like if you were to ask my wife and me and maybe four of my children to give you an account of something that we just saw, it would essentially be the same, but there'd be slight differences because I'd notice this and Kimberly had noticed that and Helen had certainly noticed the creative aspect of it. But Matthew, Mark, Luke and John give us the most detailed account in history by far of what happened. There's more detail around the resurrection of Jesus Christ than any other event in ancient history. Any other event, bar none. It's exactly, though, like you would expect to see eyewitness accounts. It feels like that. It smells like that. Each has its own angle. Each has its own perspective. But the great thing about the gospel is this. They all come to the same conclusion. And as we're going to discover today, the story is unbelievably believable. And this will become apparent as we go along today. Now, if this is your first time at New Hope, there is something that you need to get really clear in your head. And it is this. The men and women of New Hope Community Church do not believe Jesus rose from the dead simply because the Bible tells me so. And I'm going to explain that. Now, oh, we certainly do believe that Jesus did rise from the dead, but it is way, way more than just because the Bible tells me so. And here's what I mean by that. If you are here today, and maybe you knew something about God and Jesus when you were a little kid, and you dropped out of church as a child... At whatever stage you dropped out or stopped going, maybe mum and dad got divorced and yeah, then you know you weren't going to church anymore. Whatever stage you dropped out, your vision of Jesus stopped growing up right there. That means that you may have grown into adulthood with a primary version of Jesus. A primary school version. That's the Sunday school version. Well, why do you believe this? Because mummy told me so. Now, that's great for kids, but that doesn't work so well for adults. And if you went to university with that type of approach, well, why are you a Christian? Well, because my mummy told me so. That ain't going to work out so well for you. Game over. Whatever stage, my point is, you quit going to church. That could have been a youth. When the last thing you remember about Jesus or maybe it's at All Stars next door, you know, where the flannel graph was there and then Jesus fell off there and, you know, and you quit going, whatever. Or whether it was at youth and it was pizza and then you stopped growing there. Whatever stage you quit going to church, that's your version of Jesus. Then you became an adult. Problem. You have adult experience with childhood Jesus and there's a discrepancy you discern. So you quit going. Here is great news. There is an adult version of this, but to get to the adult version, you've got to let go of the childhood version and leave that there. So let me tell you why we believe Jesus physically, bodily rose from the dead. The reason we adults 
around here. And billions of people in churches around the world actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead is this. Let's start at the beginning. Matthew who was an eyewitness, the most, my, my next door neighbor is a senior constable, and he tells me on authority, the best evidence you can get is eyewitness. They were there, they saw it. And, they, and Matthew wrote about what he saw. And then Mark, who spent time with Peter and other eyewitnesses, he believed it. Dr. Luke, who doesn't matter, you can go to any university in the world. And they will tell you that Luke, in your Bible, is a first-class historian. In one chapter alone, there are 37 verifiable details that you can verify today. That's why historians take Luke extremely seriously. And he says right at the beginning, I have thoroughly investigated all these events and know them to be true. Then John, he's an eyewitness, and he believed it. Now, oh, 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 this is a good one. This one takes a cake. James, the brother of Jesus, believed that Jesus was the Son of God and rose from the dead. Time out. I want all of you now. Who, who, who's got a brother? Who's got, let me see your hands. Nobody else? Okay. Those of you, think about that brother. Just hold up. Get him in your head. What would it take? <laughs> For your, for your brother to convince you <laughs> that he was the son of God. <laughs> That's a tough ask. <laughs> Think about it. Tricks are not going to cut this. <laughs> the odd miracle here and the odd miracle there ain't going to do. No way, Jose. Now, by the way, just a sidebar here, James doesn't show up Anywhere else in the narratives of the Gospels. You know why? He's not even mentioned because he thinks his brother's crazy. You check it out. He's not even there. Thinks he's crazy until Easter morning happens. Then his whole world has turned the right side up. He becomes a leader in Jerusalem in the church, in the very center of the storm. Why? Because he saw his brother rise from the dead. Then you get another guy, Paul. Paul who hates Christians. He persecutes them. He stones them to death. He slams them in jail. He's an active terrorist. This is Paul. Hates them. But yet within a few years, this hater became a believer and a Jesus follower. So, if you want to know why we here take this seriously and we believe that this is not make-believe, that Jesus actually physically, bodily rose from the dead, the reason we believe it is it happened in history is that there are multiple independent attestations that were eyewitnesses that wrote about it. And luckily, as they wrote about these things, over the time they, they collected these letters and they fastidiously copied these letters with what we call tick digits, for those of you in IT, to know that there's exactly that number of letters in that sentence and there's a number there and the sentences to the paragraphs and the paragraphs to the chapters. So the whole thing adds up. So you can go to sum to make sure the thing balances. You accountants would like that. Even the enemies of Jesus Christ attested to the fact. It's one thing having your friends say that. What about your enemies? 
different deal. And that's non-biblical sources who were enemies, who attested to that fact. And then there's this very interesting thing we're going to touch on soon, the embarrassing testimony. I mean, if you're going to give a testimony, you don't want to embarrass yourself, right? And then the end comes as a complete surprise. So real quickly, on this Easter Sunday, I want to tell you the Easter story. First century Jews were hoping and praying for a Messiah because they were under the rule of an iron rod of Roman authority. See, Rome controlled much of the world in those days. And so they prayed, God, get rid of this beast off us. They're too heavy. They impinge upon our rights. But nothing seemed to change. And it looks like Rome would be the eternal kingdom forever, from their point of view. Then one afternoon, something very strange happened. A weird-looking joker who dressed funny and smelled funny and ate weird stuff rolls out of the desert and rolls up to the River Jordan. And then he starts preaching and talking about saying things like, repent because God is about to do something extra, extraordinary. Way out of the ordinary. And he says, repent. So, This caused such a kerfuffle back then that the leaders of the temple strode on down to um, to the River Jordan there. And they went down there and they said to him, they said to John, are you the Messiah? And John goes, no, 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 you got the wrong guy. I'm not even fit to tie his shoes. Barty is coming, so watch out and get ready and repent. Change. You are going this way with your life. Turn around, you turn and go back the other way. He says, that is my message. Now, very soon after that, Jesus appears on the pages of history. And just about everybody in the 21st century has heard of this man, Jesus. No serious historian in the world would ever deny that he was there. There's so much evidence. There's more evidence on him than anybody else in ancient history. And those of you who've been around here know that I've shown you the empirical, factual, archaeological evidence for that. And then he starts to do things like teach. And we have some of those sayings written down. And he begins to heal and feed people. And then the crowds start to follow him. Here's the problem starting. Watch. The crowds start to follow him. Now over time, the crowds just got bigger and bigger. And eventually it starts to upset the balance of power there. Jesus of Nazareth is starting to create tension and conflict between the followers of Jesus and the leaders of the temple. Then this, if you want to see, I'm giving you the cliff notes here, the summary of where everything changes. Something happened. Rumors began to spread that this guy Jesus had raised a very well-known businessman from the dead. Not just anyone, not just Joe Schmo, a prominent businessman. So a lot of people knew about it. And oh, by the way, he showed up four days late for the funeral. After it happened. And he was already buried... And he rolls up to this funeral, and because it took a lot, a lot longer, the hours were over and done in a couple of hours here. And he says to the sister, Martha, 
I want you to get to move the stone, move it away. And I love the King James. Excuse me, I don't normally use King James, but I want you to hear what she says. When he says, can you move the stone? He says, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. <laughs> he would stinketh. I don't even like putting a dead rat somewhere because, boy, they stink. Four days later, he stinketh. And you, you know what happened? Lazarus, come forth. The crowd went wild. That is a turning point right there. That's what we call a math, an inflection point. The temple leaders realized that Jesus was gaining momentum with the crowd. So therefore, a very unlikely group of people got together. The Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. And the Bible says this in John 11:48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him. Well, no, duh. When you raise somebody from the dead, a very prominent businessman, where do you think their hearts are going? As would yours and mine. And the Romans, now notice their motivation. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Self-preservation, self-interest, that's all they cared about. But what we're thinking is, if he has the crowds, bye-bye autonomy. We're in trouble. And John tells us this. John eleven fifty three. From that day on, they made plans to put him to death. There it went. There's a fulcrum. So eventually, the Jewish leaders had him arrested and talked Pilate into having him crucified. They trumped up charges like, well, he's an enemy of Rome, and he's claiming to be a king, and claiming to be a blasphemous thing like the Son of God. You know what? Have you ever been to a dinner party? And you get there, and, and you, you know, you're sitting around there, and you're gibbering around, and then somebody says, hey, Dad, or... Or says to you, tell a story about then, you know, about that thing that happened. And so you start, and you typically skip over the most of the part, and you know, you sort of set this scene. And then when you get to the main point, you start to slow down, and you get into more detail. Now, you know, when you get to this part in the four Gospels, the story slows down because there's so much historical. Narrative detail here. Now here's something to consider, especially today, if you are reconsidering Christianity. If Matthew and the other Gospels were the actual eyewitnesses of this literature, they sure made themselves look terrible in the story. This is very interesting to me because they could have made themselves look very good. They could have used what we call spin. You know what I mean by that? Make themselves look like the heroes. We were courageous. We were loyal. You always trust us. We weren't flakes. We were full of faith, knowing it was all going to be all sweet. But when you read the four Gospels, what you find is they came out looking very real. Really scared. Really insecure and unsure. 
really concerned for themselves. Forget Jesus. That's the facts. Now, if Matthew and John actually wrote these accounts, they should have made themselves look a whole bunch better. If they didn't write these accounts, then the folks who wanted to keep Jesus moving to life wouldn't portray them as weak and faithless. If you're going to fictionalize them, you'd want to make them the heroes of the faith so they could keep the story alive. Because who's going to want to follow a whole bunch of weak, wussy cowards? Unbelieving. But when you read the gospel accounts, no one took any interest in manning up the image of some of these guys. It's not there. So what do we find? What we find are characters who are actually unbelievably believable. Mark was a scribe that wrote down what Peter told him. And Peter looks absolutely terrible. He blew it. He denied the Lord three times at the top of his lungs to a little girl. How manly is that? And as important as Peter was to the early church, you would think as time went by, they'd at least try to make him look a bit more positive. Huh? Luke, he carefully investigates everything and he concludes what all the other Gospels have already concluded. There wasn't one hero amongst the bunch. Great start, eh? These characters are so believable. You know the story. When Jesus is arrested, what we say is, well, they stood elbow to elbow and said, you're going to get him, you've got to go through us. That's the way we do that. If you're making stuff up, you don't say, uh, they abandoned him. <laughs> Doesn't look too good. Versus, well, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. We'll, we'll stick with it. Actually, the Gospels record one guy, probably John Mark, fleed naked. He lost his cloak, remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was that terrified. You have to take a bit to get me that terrified to run around naked. <laughs> so these guys were very courageous. And by the way, only one guy showed up at the cross. All the rest had scarpered. And these are supposed to be his closest followers. Come on. That's unbelievably believable. <laughs> Saving their own skin. Now, these details should make us pause. I'm thinking, huh, I could imagine that quite easily. Do you know who buried Jesus? That's not a trick question. Well, here's the answer. None of his disciples. What? They didn't even stick around to bury him? What sort of brood is this? Actually, it's one rich guy. Firstly, named Joseph of Arimathea. And he was a secret follower of Jesus, a member of the ruling council. The one, and he had not consented to the ruling council's decision or action to put him to death. That was one guy. 
But he was putting, he, you'll read about him, he put his reputation on the line by asking Pilate for the body of Jesus. So that's one guy he buried him. The other guy was a Pharisee named Nicodemus who never ever went public with his faith. We talked about that two weeks ago. But he's also a member of the Jewish ruling council. Notice, absent disciples. Now if you're making this up, and you know the relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees was absolutely horrible. You do not have a Pharisees burying Jesus. For, the, for those of you who are Lord of the Rings fans, that would be like having the orcs bury Gandalf. That's not going to happen. The Gospels are very honest. At the very end of Jesus' life, you have a Pharisee and a coward front up to get his body from Pilate after he had confirmed with his guard he was dead. His closest followers, get that, didn't show up to get the body. Why? Because it's scarpered. They were in hiding. Their brain went like this. They came for him. They're going to come for us. That was their thinking. So it was these two guys, and by the way, a few women that were there. Why is it written that way? Because that's the way it happened. Nobody was trying to make anybody a hero and give them more credibility so that the future of the Jesus movement would look good. Even stranger, Jesus' enemies had more confidence in the Jesus movement than Jesus' followers. What do I mean by that? Jesus' enemies took Jesus' resurrection claims more seriously than Jesus' followers. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees, these are two groups that have tried to, well, had, had activated and actioned to get Jesus crucified, who never got along, on their day off, which they never broke, went to Pilate and said, Hey, Pilate, we need you to seal and guard the tomb and tell, uh, uh, yeah, uh, seal and guard the tomb. I'm getting ahead of myself here. To ensure the 12 of Jesus' disciples couldn't steal his body. The Bible says here in Matthew 27. So give the order. To be made and secure until the third day. That's a tomb, that is. Otherwise, what we fear, his disciples may come, highly unlikely, and steal the body and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead. And then the last deception will be worse than the first. So Pilate says, take a guard. Go make the tomb secure as you know how. Let me tell you, you've already seen there. Their intention. The thing is, the problem with that right there is Jesus' followers weren't about to steal the body. And here's why. Stealing a body would be two things. One, dangerous. And second, pointless. Think about it. If the disciples weren't willing to die for Jesus whilst he was alive, they certainly weren't going to risk their lives for him after he was dead and then perpetrate a lie now that he was dead. Think 
about it. Why die for a dead man whose death disproved everything you believe he said when he was alive? See, the very epicenter of Jesus' message was Jesus. No Jesus, no message. Jesus, see, he claimed to be the Son of God. But sons of God don't die. He claimed to be the Savior of the world. How can you save somebody if you are dead? You can't even save yourself, for goodness sake. He claimed to be personally, personally, the resurrection and the life. But how come the life is now no life and dead? It's a problem. So it's pointless. So Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to start a movement and the gates of hell can't stop it. Well, whoa, what happened? We didn't get to the gates of hell because you did. Now, if Jesus couldn't stay alive to keep a movement alive, then why risk our lives to keep a lie alive? Again, if Jesus couldn't save himself, then why risk our lives to keep a movement alive? Now, I want to quickly recap. Now, here's what you got. Here's what you got. One, you've got very nervous religious leaders. Get rid of them and make sure the guy stays dead. Otherwise, we're going to be in serious trouble. Our fears are going to be realized. Second thing you got, you got terrified apostles. They came for him and they're going to come for us. So let's get out of Dodge and lay low until things quieten down. And then we may pop our heads up. Thirdly, You've got despondent women. They really hoped things were going to change in their lives and in their world. And fourth, you've got some soldiers who are going, what the heck? Why are we standing outside the tomb of a dead man when even when he was crucified, his posse ran off? Why are we doing this? This doesn't make any sense. They're confused. Here's what you don't have. You didn't have one single person camped outside Jesus' tomb expecting a resurrection. Not one. Would you? No. Why? Because dead people stay dead. When Jesus died, the Jesus movement died with him. So, so far, the story is written up to this point as if it absolutely happened. Exactly what you would expect. It's totally believable. Now, Jesus' first century followers documented their cowardice and their disbelief. Why would they do that? If you were fabricating a lie in order to make yourself a hero, wouldn't it have been better to say, Jesus, followers knew the grave couldn't hold him. And they believed against all odds that he would rise. And they gathered with torches outside the guards to taunt them. I will be poking them hard. Just wait. Ten, nine, eight. Whoa, that'd be me. I'd like to think that, really. You know, we prayed all the way through the night, had an awesome prayer meeting, and as the sun rose and picked up the men of our lives, we heard a rumble, the guards fled, and the stone rolled away. That's how you probably want to paint that. 
Do you know that all four gospel writers present Jesus' closest followers as bewildered, confused, and afraid? Why? Because they were. Yet here we are, 2,000 years later, gathered in Jesus' name. In every continent, you know, continent nearly every country and language that you've ever heard of is celebrating the resurrection of a Jewish carpenter from an insignificant town the size of Whitford. Why is that? There were plenty of other wannabe messiahs at that time, and I bet you can't name one of them. How did that happen? After you die... and I die, how many people are going to write a book about you or me? For me, absolutely zero. How many people are going to compose a gazillion songs over the next millennia about your life and resurrection? Or paint countless portraits about you and your life? Yet, at this point in history, there was so much written about one person... In fact, more written about him than any other person in history. Why is that? Because something happened. We're not here because someone stole a body and lied about it so he could launch a movement to tell people not to lie and steal. We're not here because someone died on a cross. Everyone died on a cross. He didn't come out of there alive. We didn't die because someone gave a series of lectures with some awesome sayings. Actually, a lot of what Jesus said isn't considered very practical. It's going the opposite direction. Yet here we are on Easter morning. But a group of women, despondent women, who had known Jesus and seen the miracles and then lost all hope, went to the tomb to properly prepare Jesus' body. Because a couple of guys had done that before and they probably hashed it all up. They wanted to make sure it was done. Like, you know, when you set the table, you'll set it and then your wife will come and readjust everything, you know? Yeah. yeah. So these women who loved Jesus, whose hearts had been broken, showed up at the tomb expecting to find a body. But they found no body. That brings us to the message of Easter and why you should reconsider becoming a Christian. You may have just blown it off in the past. Or if you abandoned Christianity as a young child, you should wrestle with this. Simply this. Nobody expected nobody. It was a complete surprise. And the story ends in a way that nobody expected or predicted. And you know what happened after the resurrection? And this is the kicker. A few days. Let's say that together. A few days. Let's say it. A few. A few. Not years. Not months. Not centuries. A few days later. Not after all the eyewitnesses were dead. A few days later. In the very city of Jerusalem. Where these events took place, those very same terrified men 
who were scattered at the crucifixion, the despondent women who showed up ready to re-embalm that body, the very same men and women poured into the streets of Jerusalem. Within walking distance of the tomb and Golgotha, they poured in there and they said to the people who stood at the trial of Jesus and on the witnesses' execution, that specific message, they said this, you, you specifically, not generally, you killed him. You oversaw and approved his crucifixion. We've seen him. God raised him. Say you're sorry. That's a change in attitude and courage. How do you account for that? They bodily announced, boldly announced to the people that Jesus had bodily resurrected in Jerusalem in front of the same crowd that he'd uh, risen. And they'd say, by the way, go check it out. The tomb's over that way. You saw just a few days ago what happened over here. Go check the tomb out. Go see it. He's gone. This is why we're here today. Gathering all over the world to celebrate the one thing, the resurrection of Christ. Now, in the book of Acts chapter 4 tells us that in the very first few days of the resurrection, listen to this. This is, this is amazing. In the first few days after the resurrection, remember we're in Jerusalem here with the tomb, you know, and Golgotha right there. Thousands of Jewish people in the city of Jerusalem repented and embraced and proclaimed Jesus as Messiah. In fact, it says 5,000 men alone. The reason why we're here today, 2,000 years later, isn't because somebody died on the cross. Again, everybody died on the cross. And it's not because Jesus did some great things and taught great things. It's because he's been raised from the dead. And they were confronted by eyewitnesses who went and proclaimed that message. And most of them gave their lives, not because of what they believed. Plenty of people do that all the time. But they gave their lives because of what they saw. A risen, resurrected saviour. The reason the cowards and the despondent women reneged, did a U-turn with the message and the movement of Jesus wasn't because of something they heard. They re-engaged, their hearts and courage was filled to capacity because they saw a resurrected saviour. And here's something cool and then I'm done. About 22 years after the resurrection, 22 years is nothing like that to me. Because I can remember, that's about when my son, my youngest son was born, 22 years ago. I can tell you exactly the time, the date, what I was wearing, the whole kit and caboodle, conversations that happened day with my mother and my wife and my other children. Unbelievable. So for 22 years ago, Nathan was born. Time slowed down. You know what that's like. You remember your first birth. Time slows down. Because it's a traumatic experience. 22 years after the resurrection, the Apostle Paul writes a letter to a group of, Corinth, uh, of, of um, Christians in Corinth. And he's reminding them of what he had already taught them earlier, 22 years earlier. And the core of their beliefs, and he concludes with this, listen to what he says, it's powerful. It's one of the verses on your outline, it's up here as well. Paul, who was a former Christian hater, now a follower of Jesus, he says this, Now, brothers and sisters, 
I want to remind you. When you say remind, you've already told them once. He's already told them previously. I want to remind you. Because when I was with you years ago, I told you all about this. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. I'm not moving off the stand firm. In other words, this is the essential part of the gospel. This is essential. Here it is. And this is what it says. For what I have received from my witnesses, Peter and James, three years after his conversion, Paul saying, I pass this on to you of first importance. This is primary. If you don't get anything else, get this, he's saying. This is essential. It's not peripheral to following Jesus. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now most scholars, even liberal scholars say today, that this, what we're reading from today, is the earliest part of a Christian creed that dates back to about within 18 months of the resurrection. 18 months. So what are the facts? Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Then he was buried. By the way, do you know that most people that were crucified were not buried? They were left to hang on the cross and then they were scraped off the cross, stuck into a bucket and thrown into a tip. That's how it normally happened. But, scripture said, buried. So this reminds you that the body of Jesus was taken down from the cross where he died for your sins, he's telling these people, and was buried. And he continues, then he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now Paul was a smart guy. He was, a, he was a equivalent of multiple PhDs in theology. He'd read the scriptures. And then he appeared. The apostle Paul wrote, 22 years after, and he was referring to a creed that was from when 18 months had already previously taught. He's saying, I'm saying to you what I told you years before, that Jesus was crucified for our sins. He was buried, raised from the dead, and he appeared. Now check this last one out. This list of people. He appeared to who? To Cephas, whose name is Peter. And then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to the more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom are still living today. You can go check it out yourself, he says. He sort of takes a pause. He says, you know, you know, I can introduce you to the people who saw the resurrected of Jesus. Most of them are still alive. Shall we just catch a boat and hop across here and talk to them? Let's go. We'll take our Holy Land tour. Listen to the next part. Though some who saw the living Jesus have fallen asleep. Now, do you know that the early Christians described death as sleep? And Paul had absolute confidence he could describe death like sleep because after you sleep for a while, you always, two words, wake up. This was a New Testament view of death. And he believed that with all of his heart that Jesus rose from the dead, that every single man and woman would do the same. And he continues, then he appeared to James. Remember the brother. Can you imagine how that went? <laughs> oh, Jesus, Jesus, I'm so sorry for being such a miserable unbeliever. And you know, when you're talking all the time, I blew you off and, you know, oh boy, please forgive me. What can I do? What can I do? He says, well, well, first of all, you can tell people. And then, by the way, I want you to lead the church in Jerusalem. Ha! Huh? Okay. And then when you finish that, I want you to write a book called James. Funny <laughs> that. Yeah, yeah. This is what this means. And then he says, at last of all, and last of all, excuse me, he appeared to me. As one abnormally born, 
And here's what he means by that. It carries on. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. This is Paul's sensitive way of saying, it's true. (laughs) Yes, they're all a bunch of cowards. And they didn't hang around at Jesus' trial or burial. Peter even denied knowing Jesus to a teenage girl. And it's true that none of them manned up and stepped up. But I can't really be that critical. Because um, I was no better. I persecuted the church and I had Christians arrested. I had them tortured, put to death. Now the idea that Jesus would allow me to be an apostle and to proclaim the message of Christ's death and his resurrection around the world is so humbling, I can't even get to believe that I get to be part of this. And that is the Easter story. For those of you who are Christians here, here's a significance for you and me. It means this. Your faith is not in vain. Here's what else it means. Your faithfulness to Jesus, when you show up early and you serve and you raise support for underprivileged children and people around the world and share the gospel in Jesus' name, when you give generously to gospel concerns all over the world, your faithfulness is not in vain. Here's what else it means. For those of you for the first time in a long time today have become a little bit curious about whether it actually did happen. Whether the gospel is really a true story. Whether Jesus is really alive or not. I want to say to you that your curiosity is not in vain. For those of you who are considering coming back to church after being away for so long, a long, long time, your consideration is not in vain. And perhaps this Easter season you've decided not to say, well, I'm simply back for this week. I'm ready to re-engage like those women did. For those of you today, right now we think, oh no. This could be true. I think I simply believe it. Your belief and your confidence in this stunning piece of history is not in vain. Now, I understand that from a distance, friends, from a distance, the idea that somebody being raised from the dead is unbelievable. I get that. But the truth is, when you get into the story, you get into the conversations and the narrative, and the actual words from the eyewitnesses, and you consider what happened the days after, where you could go check this out, the years that followed and the centuries that followed, and now over a third of the world's population place their faith in Christ. Billions of people give credit to the living Savior, Jesus Christ, for changing their lives. What begins is a story that seems so unbelievable. The truth is, when you consider all of this and you factor in all of that, the Easter story is unbelievably believable. Would you bear with me and pray? I want to ask three groups of you to whisper a prayer. If you've listened to this and you say, you know what? 
I'm curious. Just whisper a prayer and say, Heavenly Father, I'm curious. That's all you have to pray. If you're one of those who would say, you know what, it's beyond that. I'm back. I grew up. I walked away from my faith. Would you simply whisper a prayer that says, Heavenly Father, I'm back. Then there are a few individuals here today that when you were listening, something inside you that you weren't even expecting happened and you realized you believe. Would you be willing to pray this prayer? And maybe you haven't prayed this prayer in a long time. But would you be willing to whisper, Heavenly Father, I believe. I believe that Christ died for me, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead, and that he was seen. And I place all my faith in that Jesus as my Savior. Heavenly Father, thank you for preserving all these ancient documents all these years for us. Thank you for the men and women who gave their lives away to ensure that these documents will be available in our generation. Give us each wisdom to know how to respond to what we just heard. In the powerful name of Jesus, I ask it. Friends and family, if there's some, as you came in today, you have received a communication card. On that communication card.